0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. This morning, we need to buckle our seatbelts. We're looking at the American experiment. The First half of the presentation this morning is going to be a Bible study looking at the various forms of government Uh, throughout sacred history and uh, what God has established under the New Covenant. And uh, then we're going to look at the history of America and the separation of church and state and why we embraced that doctrine here on this soil. And so these are things that are very, very important and relevant to each person in this room because each one of us need to be in a position to have a Bible study with a neighbor or another Christian as there becomes fewer and fewer Christians who believe in the separation of church and state, and why we believe, not just on a philosophical or legal basis, but why we believe on a moral Christian basis in the separation of church and state, is going to become very, very important to us, and our history as well. So if you bow your heads at the beginning, let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can assemble here in this room this morning. we are glad for the freedom to be able to discuss and to review and to worship. And we're not interested in just information or just history this morning. We pray that our hearts would be opened. As we were reminded yesterday that many people at the first coming of Jesus misinterpreted the scriptures and missed the Messiah because of national pride. And as we read how that will happen again, we pray that we might have attitudes and we might have humility uh, to understand uh, properly and see things the way that you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The government that God set up in in, uh, the beginning of Scripture in Israel was a theocratical form of government. And uh, you can define a theocracy... Uh, A.G. Daniels didn't do too bad of a job defining it in Liberty Magazine back in 1917 when he wrote, Theocracy is a form of government in which all the affairs of men, whether temporal or spiritual, civil or religious, are united under the control of God. And ancient Israel was a true theocracy. And when you look at what God set up in the Old Testament through his servant Moses, When he instituted the Levitical priesthood, you can see that there was barely any distinction between the leaders of church and the leaders of government. The priesthood had both uh, religious responsibility and civil responsibility. They were both pastors and they were civil judges. And so imagine if everything today was combined in one person, if in your town the pastor was also uh, the judge and dealt with all the civil cases as well. That's how it was when God set up the theocracy. It says in Deuteronomy 21 in verse 5, Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him to bless in the name of the Lord, By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And so God instituted this this, uh, theocracy. The government of Israel was was merely an extension of the government of heaven. It was based on God's laws, and God's laws were enforced as they are in the final judgment. This is why in the first uh, five books of the Bible... Uh, you can see that under ancient Israel's theocracy, Sabbath breaking, cursing parents, sexual sins, communicating with the dead, disregarding annual feasts, blasphemy, idolatry, were, were all punishable by death. And they were all under the category of, of a capital punishment. This uh, was a foreshadowing of the final judgment when all of those things will, yes, be punishable by death, and uh, the final judgment that you read about in Revelation 20 and in the last book of the Bible. So in the laws in the book of Moses, it makes no distinction between government and church. The Levitical priesthood exercised both religious and civil authority, enforcing both religious and civil laws. Centuries later, when uh, Israel clamored for a king, And God conceded to that uh, arrangement and that uh, request or that demand. And he set it up through the the throne of David. Begin with King Saul, but God rejected that throne. And then he anointed David in his place. And when David passed his throne or his kingdom to his son Solomon, you can see that this throne is not actually David's throne. It's the throne of the Lord. As the Bible says in First Chronicles 29 and verse 33, then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord, not the throne of David, but the throne of the Lord as king instead of David, his father and prospered and all Israel obeyed him. And so the throne in Jerusalem in scripture is an extension of the throne in heaven or the throne in the new Jerusalem. It was really God that was ruling Uh, in Israel, through the Levitical priesthood, or later on, through the Davidic kings. But as time went on, these delegated authorities that God uh, placed there um, abused their authority and their power, and so God eventually removes it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ezekiel 21. And you can see where God is judging the the throne of David. It's been many generations since David by this time. But God is bringing Babylon against Jerusalem because he is about to overthrow this system of government which was established under the old covenant. And he's going to replace it with a new shape or form of government in the new covenant. And so he comes with judgment against Israel. I don't have these verses on the screen. But you can look in, in Ezekiel chapter 21 and in verse uh, well you can see throughout this chapter that the judgments against Jerusalem are, first of all, judgments against the leaders, against the royal family. For instance, Ezekiel 21 and verse 12 says, Cry and wail, son of man, for it will be against my people, against all the princes Of Israel. And they're the ones that continually are named in this chapter the royal family, David's throne. Tears, including the sword, will be against my people. Strike your thigh. The next verse says, Because it is a testing. And what if the sword despises even the scepter? That means even the royal family of David, which God had appointed. He's about to overthrow. The scepter shall be no more. And so swords are drawn, and it comes against the princes of Israel. Skip down to Ezekiel 21 and verse 25 says, Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, still speaking about the royal family of David, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. Thus says the Lord God, Remove the turban, take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. This is because God is is overthrowing the, the kingdom of David because of the uh, abuses of power and because they had gone in their own way. And he says, when I replace this, this government, nothing shall remain the same. We're going to have a completely new model in the New Testament. And then it says in verse 27, overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until, him, until he comes whose right it is and I will give it to him. Who's that speaking of? That's speaking of Jesus. That's a messianic prophecy saying, I will not allow anybody to sit on the throne in Jerusalem again until the Messiah comes, and I will give it to him whose right it is. And so when the kings were taken captive, uh, there was no more kings, princes ruling in Jerusalem until the time of the Messiah. And at the time of the Messiah, the Messiah would would, would receive it, whose right it is. And uh, the purpose of this Messiah was to either restore or replace or do something with this government which had been cast down. And you can see this throughout the Messianic prophecies, such as Isaiah 9, and it's not verse 67, it's verse 6 and 7. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Now, this is a, a messianic prophecy. You can read the verses before, and these verses are, are quoted in, the, in Handel's Messiah. And, but the purpose of the Messiah is that this government is going to rest on his shoulders, he's going to rule on the throne of David, and uh, he's going to establish judgment and justice forever. And this was repeated to Jesus' mother, Mary, through the angel Gabriel in Luke 1, verse 32 and verse 33. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. This is is what is gonna be handed to your son, Mary, this one that you're to name Jesus. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Was Jesus to be a king? Yes or no? He was to be a king. Was Jesus supposed to sit on a throne? Yes or no? Yes, he was. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So some of these prophecies can uh, kindle a little bit of sympathy in our hearts uh, for those that were expecting Jesus to set up an, an earthly kingdom and an earthly throne but they had a hard time accepting it and paying attention when Jesus says, yes, I am here as a king. Yes, I am here to establish a kingdom. Yes, I am here to sit on a throne, but not an earthly one. Because this throne is in heaven. My coronation is going to be in heaven. It's recorded in in Revelation 4 and 5, where the throne is is up there. And uh, I am moving the throne of David from Jerusalem, planet Earth, And I am moving David's throne up to heaven and I will sit on it up there. And that's exactly what Jesus did. This is why um, in Revelation, it identifies Jesus with this line of David. Paul did as well in the book of Romans and such. But Revelation 22 and verse 16 says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. I mean, only Jesus could be the father of David and the son of David. How can you be both the son and the father of the same person at the same time? But Jesus was because he was the creator, the human family, and he was also the offspring of David that came after him, both the father and the son of David. No angel could do that. No person could do that. Only Jesus could fill that role. Amen? And so we can understand that when... When Jesus came to this world, uh, he came here to establish a kingdom. Now, one thing I I did not point out, perhaps I should back up a few slides and show it to you uh, visually. Whoops, there it is. This this Ezekiel 21, I read there from verse uh, 27, he says, overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. How many times does he say overthrown? Three times. There's some significance there because uh, Ezekiel was living during the time of Babylon, which had uh, removed uh, this, this kingdom from Israel, but it would not just be then, it would be overthrown by Medo-Persians, so they would, Persians and the Medes would prohibit uh, this throne from being reestablished in Jerusalem, but it would be overthrown again by the Greeks, and uh, they would not allow the kingdom to be reestablished in Jerusalem. And it would be overthrown again by the Romans. And the Romans would not allow the Jews to reestablish their throne in Jerusalem. That's why Pilate was there as the, as the governor of, of Rome. And so it was overthrown, overthrown, overthrown until he comes, whose right it is, and that is Jesus. <laughs> and so Jesus speaks of this throne when he was here. <coughs> and... Uh, giving this throne to his disciples uh, to receive this throne and to rule on this throne with him. And it says in Luke 22 and verse 29 and 30, Jesus says, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus says, my father has given me a throne, and I am going to give you thrones. This is the only kingdom commission. There's only one kingdom commission that Jesus gave his disciples. It's called the gospel commission. And so if we want to know what this verse means, that the disciples would be given this charter for this kingdom and for these thrones, then all we have to do is read the rest of the New Testament. Was Jesus giving them a charter to set up an earthly kingdom? Let me ask that again. Was Jesus giving his disciples a charter to set up a kingdom on earth? No, he was not. That doesn't mean that Christians can't be involved in, in governments and such. But Jesus was not giving his disciples a charter to set up a kingdom. He was, came here not to establish a government, on Earth, but to establish a church on Earth, is that clear? And this, this is so important because later we we I, I guess operate under the auspices some some Christians. That Jesus gave multiple charters, not only the the com- gospel commission, but another commission to to build up earthly kingdoms and uh, to to set up our own theocracy. You have to understand that when when. God set up a theocracy in the Old Testament. It was not Moses setting it up. God directly commissioned the ancient nation of Israel. He commissioned it directly through his servant Moses. But if Moses were to make the whole thing up and pretend that he had visions and that, yeah, I'm starting a new kingdom all by myself, whenever humans try to set up a theocracy, does that work? No, a theocracy means it's under the direct control and guidance and communication of God. There is the Urim and the thummim. There is the prophets. It was under the direct uh, governance or leadership of God. And so whenever humans try to set up their own theocracy, it becomes one of the the worst religious frauds because man-made theocracies, which there is no such thing, but man-made false theocracies... Are, are, are one of the worst plagues upon humanity. And we, we look at some of those in history. Now, when Jesus was speaking to his antagonists that came to quiz him and to drill him, in Matthew 22, 15 to 22, you can look at that in, in your scriptures if you'd like. Matthew 22, you've got these Herodians who were really... Uh, more on the left and and Roman collaborators, similar to the Sadducees. And you have the Pharisees who were Roman antagonists. But these two, they were on opposite sides of uh, of the political spectrum, were uniting together to antagonize Jesus and try to trip him up in the area of politics. That's why it says in Matthew 22, verse 15, the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And we have to be careful how we talk today, too, because people want to entangle us with the same questions. And they sent him to their to him, their disciples with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay t- to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? Now when Jesus asked for the coin, and asked whose image or inscription is this, that was a a very bothersome question. And that came forcefully to me a few weeks ago when I was in the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., and I took this picture here of these Roman coins. You can't see the inscriptions clearly, I know that, but they have here both Roman coins and Jewish coins. And the Jewish coins would maybe have a symbol like the, the menorah, candlesticks, and these Roman coins would have pictures of the Caesar and of sun god, and Jupiter, and other pagan things. There was, there was nothing that was more descriptive or a visual reminder of their subjection to Rome than this coin with Caesar's inscription on it. <laughs> they wanted nothing more than to get rid of that money and to have their old money back, which they had minted. These two types of coins, the Jewish coin versus the Roman coins, they were symbols of Israel's independence versus the the globalist tyranny and the colonizers from Rome, which had subjugated them and had taken away their religious freedom. But when Jesus said, whose inscription is on it? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. Jesus established in the New Testament two separate domains of responsibility. Caesar, you are not accountable to Caesar for the things that you are accountable to God for. And God's domain includes it all, but he does give to Caesar a certain domain. And those... Those domains are, are separate. We have an expanded commentary on G, what Jesus says in Matthew 22, and it comes in, in Romans 13. Now, we often think of Romans 13 as the passage where Paul's saying to submit to government and all those things. And, um, but we need to realize that after Paul says that, he's, he's using the same language as Jesus used in Matthew 22. So it's really Paul's inspired commentary a theological treatise, so to speak, uh, on, on Jesus' doctrine of render to Caesar what Caesar's and to God's what's God's. He says in Romans 13, verse 7, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And so he's using the same language as Jesus. They're both talking about render each one to their proper domain. Now, when you back up, these are the verses that are uh, quoted often in, in support of submission to the government, which we do need to be very careful about. Because in this, Paul lets us know that Caesar also derives his authority from God. And he, he, he repeats this, what is it, four times or something here? Or, or verse four might, might mention it twice. He says in verse 1, these authorities that exist are appointed by who? God. This is a a pretty hard pill to swallow during the time of of Nero, who was one of the worst tyrants in in shedding blood upon blood. But they institute the ordinance of themselves. He says the ordinance of God in verse 2. They are God's ministers and again, in verse 6, they are God's ministers. And so he says there that they do not bear the sword in vain because God has given them a sword to be a terror to evil. And so they, the government, there is a government appointed by God in the New Testament, but it's not a charter directly from the government of God that's an extension of God's government as it is in the Old Testament. God appoints wicked and evil governments, such as Rome, and says, I have appointed these to to regulate crime, terror, and evil, and to stop that and and allow for safety and peace in neighbor-to-neighbor relationships. And you can see this explained uh, in verse 7 and 8. And when it's using the Uh, The verbs here, the ESV maybe uses the best words because it says um, this word owed, which is the same word and translated from the same Greek word is what we have in the next verse. So pay attention to this. It says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. We're talking about what we owe to government. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed we're talking about what do we owe to government and what are we accountable to them for. And in the next verse, it says, using the same verb, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Well, which law are we talking about? We're talking about the law that says that we should love each other, love our neighbors, such as, verse 10 says, the commandments, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You know which commandment that is? It's number seven, you shall not murder. It's Number six, you shall not steal. It's number eight, you shall not bear false witness. It's Number nine, you shall not covet. It's Number ten, which table of the law is he quoting? Second table of the law. And this is why A.T. Jones used this verse when he was arguing and in December of 1888 and debating Senator Blair in the Senate committee trying to defeat the Sunday Law and he used this verse to show that God has appointed a limited scope or role of government in the new covenant. And that this, this has to do with neighbor to neighbor relationships that are loosely, uh, that are articulated in the second table of the law. But the government has no role in the first table of the law, the government doesn't say what you owe to God. That's between you and God. It doesn't interfere in your worship to a higher being. That's between you and God. It, it simply regulates these neighbor-to-neighbor relationships. Now, we have to admit, as, as um, people such as A.T. Jones and those that have talked about this before me, we have to admit that the government cannot enforce even the second table of the law. Can the government enforce the 10th commandment, you shall not covet? No. Coveting happens in the heart. Can the government regulate what's happening in your heart? No, it can only regulate actions and words as well sometimes. Making threats, things like that, they regulate that as well. But they can't regulate thoughts. And the, the, and, and the, the moral law that's in the second table goes far beyond what a government could ever touch. That's why when Jesus was speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, and he was speaking of the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder. And he says, but if you hate your brother without a cause, you've already committed murder where? In your heart. So in the eyes of heaven, if you just hate somebody, you're guilty of breaking the Sixth Commandment. But can the government punish you for hating somebody? No, they can't. They can punish you for doing violence against somebody or or, um, threatening them. And so, Jesus spoke of the the seventh commandment. The moral law in the eyes of heaven. God's law. and the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke of it there as well. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But what did he say? He who looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery where? In his heart. Can the government regulate sexual lust? No. They can uh, regulate sexual violence and, and uh, those kinds of actions. So when, when we say that the government's involved in the second table of the law, we're saying that a little bit loosely because the government still cannot enforce the moral law, even the second table, as, as God does. But it does regulate neighbor-to-neighbor relationships. And Paul says, if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that is the second great commandment. There were even secular people in the New Testament that understood this separation of church and state, such as Gallio from Corinth. Paul spent, uh, <clears throat> Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth. And when Paul is about to open his mouth, it says in, in Acts 18, why did he spend so long in that city? Because that city, he had more religious freedom than any other city. Why did he have religious freedom in Corinth? more than other cities, because there was a proconsul there, or a city official, that believed in the separation of church and state, and that he was not to be a judge of religious matters. When Paul was to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters and he drove them from the judgment seat. And so Gallio really is a great champion of of religious liberty in the New Testament. He wasn't a Christian, he was a secular, he was appointed by the Roman government, but he understood that his role in government was to deal with safety and and establishing peace and the neighbor to neighbor relationships and said, if it has to do with your religious law, I don't wanna have anything to do with it. And that's the model that, Jesus sets up under the New Covenant. But unfortunately, as we saw in the history that we covered yesterday in the 4th century, by the time that we get to the 4th century, uh, Christians are trying to establish a theocracy. And there is a man-made theocracy because God did not tell them to do it. And they begin to swing the sword and they begin to light the fires to enforce religious laws. They begin to work with civil government. And ecclesiastical law and uh, civil law really become the same thing. It takes a process of a few centuries. Under the Justinian code, it seems that they were well blended by the sixth century. But it began in the fourth century uh, with Constantine. And it's, it's too bad because as we learned yesterday or learned again, In 313, the Edict of Milan was passed. It granted full religious liberty to Christians. But within 20 years, Christians are forming these close friendships with Constantine, and there's there's a blending of theology and politics, and eventually of church and state, and and Constantine is calling church councils, even though he's not a pastor, he's the leader of state, and bishops are very involved in state, and there's there's this blurring. And they establish in Rome what they claim to have a, a theocracy. And so that results in the, the Inquisitions and all of the persecution throughout the Dark Ages under this model that the church leans on the state to enforce her dogma. So if people don't partake in Mass, um, if they're caught copying scriptures or, or sharing them or translating them, all those things Um, people would be burned to the stake, they would be cast in dungeons, families would be separated, property taken, uh, families split up. You know the history if you've uh, listened or read books such as Fox's Book of Martyrs. To a great degree, the Protestant Reformation freed the world from this system. But it was not a clean, smooth break. That also took some time. It was a slow break, with many setbacks and restarts. And John Calvin is a good example. A young age, John Calvin was passing through a town in France when he happened upon the burning of a man who was paying the ultimate price for his faith. This story is in the book, Great Controversy, about the French Reformation. Calvin was deeply impressed by the expression of peace and hope that he saw on the dying man's face. And he was motivated to investigate the scriptures that would inspire a person to prioritize faith over life itself. Calvin's study of the Bible led him to abandon his allegiance to church traditions and look to Jesus as his only source of salvation. At the age of 28, John Calvin moved from France to Geneva, Switzerland, which would become a center of the Protestant Reformation. He found many friends of the Protestant Reformation there, people from across Europe, who were breaking under the strain of religious persecution, found in Geneva a place where they could safely study and worship according to the Bible. Geneva had freed herself from the bondage of Rome and was ripe for a new form of church and government. But the new order of church and government would strangely follow the same old man-made theocracy which Calvin instituted in Geneva. Under Calvin's leadership, in Geneva, every citizen was expected to publicly swear allegiance to a confession of faith. The oath of allegiance as a citizen and the confession of faith as a Christian were identical. And this was at once to make the church and state one and the same thing with the church above the state. Calvin succeeded in passing many laws in Geneva. Attempting through civil means to enforce the moral standards of the Mosaic Code, Calvin's religious intolerance was especially demonstrated by how he ha- handled the case of Michael Severtus. Mr. Severtus was a man who had escaped, narrowly escaped death at the hands of the Catholic Inquisition, and he fled and fled, and he finally arrived in Geneva, and he breathed a sigh of relief. But when Calvin uh, learned that he was anti Trinitarian and had a different belief about uh, baptism. Calvin had him arrested. There was a church council, and, and they burned Michael Severus to the stake. Who was burned to the stake? Not by Catholics, but by Protestants. So Protestants uh, were persecuting each other. There's much more that could be said about the history of Protestantism in, in Europe. Martin Luther was a great champion of religious freedom, especially in his early days, in, in the 1520s and, and uh, up until the, the Council of spires in Augsburg. But in the middle of his ministry, he began to make compromises. as he gained freedom from Rome. Then they begin to establish the Lutheran Church as the state church in Germany, and they begin to persecute Quakers. And uh, other religious dissidents. And so he was not such a great champion of religious freedom uh, as much, at least, in the second half of his ministry. But his writings early in his ministry were great articulations of religious freedom as they were trying to free themselves from uh, the tyranny of Rome. Well, people came pretty soon, people were looking to the shores of America as the place where they could find freedom, potentially. When we come to the shores of America, the Puritans came here fleeing from England, fleeing from Holland. They come to America, and they come to America looking for a religious freedom, not for themselves, or for themselves, but not for others. And they established, once again, a man-made theocracy. And uh, in, in Massachusetts Bay, there were many laws set up that would punish people for not going to church. You could be fined or whipped. If you were uh, not uh, paying your tithes and offerings, that also could, you could be arrested or, or fined. Um, Ann Hutchinson was arrested because she expressed concern about what the pastor in, in Massachusetts was preaching. Um, <clears throat> Roger Williams was arrested because he came there as a Puritan, but when he preached about the separation of church and state, that doctrine was too extreme, and they arrested him and uh, he was banished in the middle of winter, where he would have froze to death in the cold forest, but was rescued by American Indians who saved his life. Rhode Island was the first state to give religious uh, freedom to all. There was no religious test. But all the other states had state religions of Anglicanism or Puritanism. Even in... 1776, when Delaware wrote their constitution, I, I could spend the rest of my time reading state constitutions and how they all blended church and state, but I just chose one, uh, the state of Delaware in 1776. I do profess faith in God and the Father. This is a, this is a test if you're to be the governor of Delaware or any state office. Uh, you are to profess faith in God, the Father, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, One God, blessed forevermore, and I do acknowledge the holy scriptures of the Old Testament and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. So if you didn't believe in the inspiration of the Bible, you could not be a a religious officer in Delaware, according to their 1776 constitution, which was the same year that we gained independence uh, from England. In doing that, we would have gone in the model of the old world and tried to set up another man-made theocracy, except we couldn't decide which one to go for. We realized we had to be united to gain freedom from England, and with some being Puritan, some being Anglican, which way are we going to go? But we desperately had to unite, and so we compromised by the federal government following in the footsteps of Rhode Island. And thus we have the First Amendment to our Constitution saying that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now this is when state constitutions still have state churches, but the, the constitution says the government will, will not, the federal government uh, will not do that. And so uh, religious freedom is not an absolute right in the sense that we America doesn't give people the religious freedom to exercise their, their religious practices, if that includes child sacrifices and other things that are to hurt neighbors. We won't allow that. But if, if your religion does not hurt your neighbor, then uh, you have freedom to choose and believe the way you want here. And in the Declaration of Independence, it says, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are dowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we were, we were proud of, of our liberty, but when Jefferson wrote this in the Declaration of Independence, it produced a crisis that we couldn't afford to face right then, but it would, it would brew for uh, 80 years when uh, we were looking for freedom for ourselves, but not giving it to our slaves which we were holding in captivity. And this became a, a uh, point of um, tension... And uh, the Adventist had some commentary. Well, I think what I have here, I don't have this on the screen, but I have it in my, my notes. I'll, I'll turn there. At right away, there begin to be two rivers of thought in America interpreting our founding documents. One river of thought is that we have a defect from our beginning because we say that all men are created equal, but we're holding slaves. And that began to be expressed right away. Another, another river of thought was we have a defect in our founding documents because we don't mention the name of God or Jesus in, our found, in, in the Constitution. Now, these two rivers of thought did cross, and there's some people that, that believed both, but they were distinct rivers of thought. And so, in September 20, 1793, these are some quotes that I pulled from... Um, the two republics, which I've quoted from many times during the seminar by A.T. Jones. On September 20, 1793, in a sermon preached in New York City on on a fast day on account of the yellow fever, which was a pandemic in Philadelphia, he, he preached a sermon entitled Divine Judgments. Dr. John M. Mason magnified the irreligious feature of the Constitution as one of the chief causes of the calamities of which he was speaking. He solemnly observed that he had such momentous business as forming a constitution been transacted by Muslims or even the savages, they would have done it in the name of God. And I won't read it to you the rest, but he's saying that Muslims or savages, if they had written the constitution, they would have named their own God. But thankfully, we're not Muslims or savages. But how come we didn't name our God in our constitution? And he says, this is the reason that the pandemic is hitting Philadelphia is because God is bringing judgments on us for us not being a Christian nation. In 1811, Samuel Austin in New England, Congregationalist, afterward president of the University of Vermont, preached a sermon in Worcester, Massachusetts, in which he declared that his the capital defect, the capital defect in the national constitution will, will issue inevitably in the destruction of the nation. He says, if we don't amend our constitution to put the name of God in our constitution, God will destroy America. That was in 1811. So this idea was out very immediately at the beginning. And then there was another uh, uh, river of thought. Now, part of the problems that Adventists had with what was happening in Christianity at the time is that slavery was not just being uh, defended by the federal government, but slavery was being defended by Christian churches. And so it was a commentary on the spiritual condition of the fallen churches of Babylon. And so, in our early publications, we wrote much about it, such as Review and Herald, March 6, 1855, the right to hold human beings in bondage and to buy and sell them, is now made out in the most confident manner from the Old and New Testaments by the leading doctors of divinity of most denominations. And some of the most distinguished and skillful are able to make out this from the golden rule. The professed church, to a fearful extent, Is the right arm of the slave power. And our own nation is a perfect illustration on the subject of slavery of a nation drunken with the wine of Babylon. And so Adventists saw this as much as a political thing, they saw it as a commentary on the condition of the pastors in America. And so um, there was an effort at the Civil War to amend our Constitution to add the name of God, because they believed that the Civil War was a judgment from God because we had not had the name of God in our Constitution. And uh, this John Alexander, the first uh, 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 Congress to make this amendment, and there was one every year after 1863 for 20 years, we regard the neglect of God and his law by omitting all acknowledgement of them in our Constitution as the crowning original sin of the nation. And and this is what develops, as two rivers of thought, that the original sin is that the name of God is missing from our Constitution, or that the original sin is slavery, and we say all are created equal, but we hold slaves. Those two rivers of thought. Slavery is is one of its natural outgrowths. Therefore, the most important step remains yet to be taken, to amend the Constitution so as to acknowledge God and the authority of His law. And so, this amendment was advocated for for 20 years and it gained momentum in 1880s. And this was the proposed Christian amendment to our national constitution, that we the people of the United States, and they wanted to add this part, recognizing the being and attributes of Almighty God, the divine authority of the Holy Scriptures, the law of God is the paramount rule, and Jesus the Messiah, the Savior and Lord of all, in order to form a more perfect union, dot, dot, dot. And so they wanted to insert that into the constitution to put the name of God in the Constitution, and that that would atone for our original sin of not naming God in our Constitution. James White wrote in 1854, published in the Review and Herald, if this nation would not be the most hypocritical nation on the face of the earth, it should amend this declaration thus, all white men are created free and equal. And so uh, Adventists clearly rejected one river of thought and clearly embraced the other river of thought. Ellen White wrote, these professed uh, Christians read of the sufferings of the martyrs, and they think of religious liberty, and tears course down their cheeks. This early writing is 275. They wonder that men could ever become so hardened as to practice such cruelty toward their fellow men, yet those who think and speak thus are at the same time holding human beings in slavery. And this is not all. They sever the ties of nature and cruelly oppress their fellow men, Dot, dot, dot. And then she says, said the angel, it will be more tolerable for the heathen and for papists in the the day of the execution of God's judgment than for such men. She's saying America has become morally lower than the heathen and the old Europe under the papists because of this uh, terrible sin. She wrote a few years later in Testimonies, Volume 1, our government has been very proud and independent. The people of this nation have exalted themselves to heaven and have looked down upon monarchical governments and triumphed in their boasted liberty. And when people are boasting about liberty, watch out, because often when you boast about liberty is when you are actually taking somebody else's liberty away. Triumphed in their boasted liberty while the institution of slavery that was a thousand times worse than the tyranny exercised by monarchical governments was suffered to exist and was cherished. Remember, the England, Christians overthrew slavery in England at the end of the 1700s. But we refused to do that in America for 70 years, uh, and it was primarily Christians that entrenched and defended slavery, although it had already been overthrown by the monarchical government in England. In this land of light, a system is cherished, which allows one portion of the human family to enslave another portion, degrading millions of human beings to the level of the brute creation The equal of this sin is not to be found in heathen lands. Ellen White believed that America was guilty of a sin greater than countries that we look down on. And she wrote on page 264 of the same book, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1 God is punishing this nation for the high crime of slavery. He has the destiny of the nation in his hands. He will punish the South for the sin of slavery and the North for so long suffering its overreaching and overbearing influence. And so Adventists squared barely strongly on the river of thought that the original sin that that caused the Civil War and that not only caused it, but was uh, an act of God in a sense the finger of God was judging and punishing this nation for what we had done. But during that time... uh, and the other group of thought, even after the Civil War, got stronger and stronger. The Civil War, more than it being about slavery, was the original sin of leaving God out of our Constitution. And this whole battle came to a head in the 1880s. And this is why Adventist started this journal in 1886, January 1886, called the American Sentinel. And in the first edition of the American Sentinel, which was the predecessor replaced by Liberty Magazine in 1906. In our first edition, we declared that the purpose of this journal, it was devoted to the defense of American institutions, the preservation of the United States Constitution as it is, so far as regards religion or religious tests, and the maintenance of human rights, both civil and religious. The reason we started the American Sentinel was to fight against this Christian amendment to our Constitution. And Ellen White wrote in 1889, Testimonies, Volume 5, page 718, regarding the American Sentinel. And she was very concerned the Adventists were, were, were asleep to what was happening with Christian nationalism at that time. She says, for three years, warnings have been sounding forth to the world through the columns of the Sentinel. But those who profess to believe present truth have not been influenced by these danger signals as they should have been. Had our brethren used the sentinel as it was their priv- privilege to do, and had all been united in recommending it in every conference and every church as God would have them do, had the attention of our people been called to this work, which was so essential to be done for this time, had they appreciated the light which God permitted to shine upon them in warnings and counsels and in the delineation of events that are taking place, We should not now, as a people, be so far behind in making preparation for the work. There have been surprising indifference and inactivity in this time of peril. Truth, present truth, is what the people need. And if the startling significance of the movements now in progress in regard to the religious amendments, that's what she's writing about, this river of thought that has been at this point in the country for 100 years, that our original sin is leaving God out of the Constitution. We need to amend it. If it had been realized by our brethren in every church, if they had discerned in these movements the plain, direct fulfillment of prophecy calling upon them to arouse to the demands of the crisis, they would not now be in such stupor and death-like slumber. So Ellen White was surprised and, and disappointed and concerned at the level of indifference in our churches, to recognize what was happening. You have those such as uh, A.T. Jones and uh, Wagner and Wagner's father um, that were behind the American Sentinel, and they were traveling all over the country. Whenever there was a rally for this uh, uh, amendment, they were there to oppose it and to stand up against it. And um, this is because they had a very solid scriptural understanding of the form of government that God established under the New Covenant. They understood what Jesus meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. They understood that Jesus did not force and compel people to follow or listen, but he allowed people to turn away and to reject and to hate and all those things. And when I use the phrase Christian nationalism, there's many different definitions and I've I've listened to documentaries that I completely reject their definition of Christian nationalism. But I will will use the definition from Desire of Ages, page 509. This definition of Christian nationalism, which was written in 1898, it was strong at the time. It was also in Australia at the time when she was writing Desire of Ages. There was laws in Australia at this time uh, for, for Sunday sacredness and such. She writes in Desire of Ages, and I've, I've quoted from Desire of Ages several times in the last three days. Desire of Ages is one of the best books when it comes to religious liberty. There's a whole lot in there. and You read about the life of Jesus and how he re- uh, related to the Romans and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and his disciples and the Jews and the You learn a whole lot, just as you do, from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about religious liberty. And she writes there, but today... This was published in 1898. and She's applying what happened back then to what's happening now uh, in America and perhaps Australia, where, where she was. But today, in the religious world, there are multitudes who, as they believe, are working for the establishment of the kingdom of Christ as an earthly and temporal dominion. They desire to make our Lord the ruler of the kingdoms of this world, the ruler in its courts and camps, its legislative halls, its palaces, and its marketplaces. Ponder ponder what you see on the screen. I take these as a proper description of, of Christian nationalism. They expect him to rule through legal enactments enforced by human authority. Since Christ is not now here in person, they themselves will undertake to act in his stead, to execute the laws of his kingdom. And that's what happened with the papacy. And that's what happened uh, in Geneva. But it was a step in the right direction. That's what happened in Massachusetts and the other colonies until Rhode Island. And um, there were many attempts after our nation was founded to get onto this track. And this is circling back around today. This river of thought, which has gone underground for a long time, is getting pressured by secularism today and the left and the the hostile environment towards Christianity. And this hostile environment towards Christian morals is stirring up this river of thought to come to the surface. And so you see this polarity between the left and the right. It says, The establishment of such a kingdom is what the Jews desired in the days of Christ. They would, have, they would have received Jesus had he been willing to establish a temporal dominion to enforce what they regarded as the laws of God and to make them the expositors of his will and the agents of his authority. But he said, My kingdom is not of this world. John 18.36 John he would not accept the earthly throne. It happened then, it happened in Ellen White's time, and it's circling back again today. I shared this message today with you because more than ever before, we really need to know how to give a Bible study on the forms of government throughout sacred history and what God has given us under the new covenant. We need to understand our American history and uh, the things that happened. We need to understand our Adventist history and the things that our pioneers saw. We need to understand the early history of, of our religious liberty advocates and the things they were facing. And we need to have eyes to see and to discern some of the things taking place today, which is what I'll get into tomorrow. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, today we give our hearts to you we don't want to be asleep. We don't want to be blind. We, we feel the hostility against Christianity. We, we know an overreaction. We, we don't always know what to do. We don't always know what to say. But here we are, Lord, and we want to follow the example of Jesus. We want to embrace what you taught, what you gave your New Testament church. And if the Adventist church is one of the last churches standing for these principles, may you give us discernment and clarity to articulate and to defend the things that we are here to do. Most of all, you can work on our hearts, take away all pride and jealousy and bigotry and prejudice and and, uh, um, looking down on others to have a heart of humility and be ready to see your face when you come in the clouds of heaven, I pray in Jesus' name. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.